1: Big stories. Big guests. The big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3. 770 CHQR. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Rob Breckenridge. On today's episode, is there a clash between the conscience rights of doctors and the rights of their patients? The Canadian Civil Liberties Association believes we have the right balance and Ontario's top court agrees. Also, Ottawa has brought together an expert panel on artificial intelligence. But what are the specific questions and concerns we need them to address? Plus, the city of Calgary looking at ways of reducing the use of single-use plastic items. But what might that entail? Well, significant court ruling in Ontario today. Uh, Ontario's highest court has upheld a lower court decision regarding the obligations of doctors. So it is, at one level, a case about patients' rights, but it's also a case about doctors' rights. So where does the uh, conscientious objections of doctors, when does that end? When does that start to infringe on the rights of patients? Now, this is not a case of doctors being asked to perform procedures that they would object to, like, for example, medically-assisted dying or abortion. And no one has suggested that. The doctors do have that freedom to say, I am not going to perform an abortion or an assisted suicide because that that clashes with my deeply held beliefs. But this court ruling today upholds a lower court decision, which upheld these regulations in Ontario, that doctors must still give patients referrals for these procedures that may clash with their moral or religious beliefs. It was a unanimous ruling today. Uh, from the Ontario Court of Appeal. One of the uh, intervening groups in this case, the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, joining us on the line is Noah Mendelsohn-Aviv, uh, Director of the Equality Program with the CCLA. Noah, thank you for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Well, thanks for having me, Rob. All right, well, let's talk about the CCLA's position here. I mean, uh, your organization very much then on the side of patients' rights, but do you see this in, in, at any level as a conflict of rights?
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean, CCLA supports the vast uh, array of fundamental rights and freedoms of people in Canada, including the right to freedom of religion. And we certainly recognize that for doctors who object to performing or being involved in, um, you know, various kinds of services, whether it's abortion or medical assistance in dying, there is a freedom of religion issue here. Our position had to do with the appropriate balance that needed to be struck in this case, in this context.
1: So what what should guide us then in in finding that balance?
2: Well, I think when we look at the totality of the circumstances, we need to start, and and the court concluded with this, we need to start by recognizing that already patients are being asked to compromise significantly in the policies that say the doctors don't have to provide the health care service that they need. So imagine a... You know, a young woman, a young girl goes to get some kind of reproductive service from her doctor. Maybe she's in a small community where there aren't a lot of doctors. Maybe she comes from a cultural community where these things are frowned upon or has a religious background. Whatever the case may be, she goes to her doctor. She, 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 she finds the courage within herself to speak to her doctor in confidence, and the doctor says, I'm not going to help you. So already there, allowing the doctor to do that is a significant compromise of her interests. What the doctor is now being told they have to do by the policy of the College of Physicians and Surgeons in Ontario is that they can't just then walk away. They have to give her something, and what they have to give her is an effective referral. They or somebody in their office, it doesn't even have to be them, have to provide her with information about a doctor who will provide the service a doctor who is not objecting and who is available and who is accessible to her. So not only does the doctor not have to do it, they don't even have to have the conversation with her. They simply have to find a person in their office who can help her.
1: So by conceding that doctors are not going to be forced to do anything that goes against their views, or even, as you say, that they don't even have to have these conversations, that we are already conceding that point that they have rights. And so once we've acknowledged that they have their rights protected, now we can turn to protecting patients' rights then.
2: Well, that's right. And for some doctors, they say, well, that's that's very nice, but that doesn't help me. There are doctors who say... If in any way I have to be involved, it's like making me an accessory or making me complicit in an act that I consider to be unethical or against my religious views. And that, too, is something that I object to. And that's where CCLA says, and the court said as well, well, that's, that's going to have to be uh, unfortunate for you because we can't compromise the rights of patients that much. If you have somebody who needs medical assistance in dying and they have difficulty as it is getting access to a second opinion or another doctor, if they have linguistic issues, if they don't have friends who can help them, how are they supposed to find a service that they may need to put them out of their pain? How are they supposed to find somebody who can actually provide what is a difficult, difficult, it may be a difficult service to find if we don't ask their personal doctor to help them or have somebody available to help them and so that's why we say yes of course doctors have rights they have the right to religious freedom but patients have rights too. they have the right to autonomy they have the right to human dignity they have the right to privacy both abortion rights and the right to die with dignity have are charter protective rights that have been recognized by the courts in Canada and rights such as health care although we don't have a right to health care Where it's provided, it has to be provided in a way that is compliant with the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And so we have to also recognize the rights of patients. They can't get the service from their doctor. That's already a compromise, but they should have access to these important services.
1: What do you make of the argument uh, that the other side has advanced, that by providing the referral you're essentially facilitating that? it's, It's participation in a different way.
2: I think it's up to every person to decide for themselves based on their deeply held convictions and beliefs what it is that they believe and they hold to be true. And if a doctor holds the belief that sending a person to an individual in their office to provide a referral possibly to an agency that can give them the helpful information that that patient needs, if a doctor objects to that, then they might be in the wrong business. They might have to narrow the scope of their business uh, and of their practice so that they're not interacting with the vulnerable people who need health care, or that kind of health care.
1: Right. The, the level of obstacle that the lack of a referral constitutes, because for some people that it's, it's relatively simple to go to a different doctor or to, to seek out that service on their own. The referral makes it easier, but the lack of referral doesn't make it impossible.
2: Well, that's not what the court found. The court recognized that for some people... The lack of referral can, in fact, make it impossible because some of these services are also time-sensitive. So, sorry, I'm just going to... Time-sensitive in that if you are uh, in need of reproductive health care, if you are in need of abortion, there's a certain time frame on it. If you're living in a small community where there aren't a lot of doctors, if you are in need of medical assistance and dying because you're in excruciating pain every day that you have to wait... Is a, is, is a denial of service. I mean, it's not a delay of service, it's a denial for that, for that additional day that a person has to wait. And so the lack of effective referral could very well lead to a denial. And again, if you're living in a, in a, in a particular linguistic community where people uh, may not speak English, may not have access to the same kinds of services, all of that could lead to a denial, and that's what the court found, both at the divisional court level and at the court of appeal today. But I think, I think even going back to your original statement, Rob, about it, it's sort of easy enough for a doctor to say no. It may be easy for the doctor, but it, but the court said we also need to look at it from the perspective of the patient, who looks to a doctor as a professional, and may encounter a, a level of shame and stigma when told no, I won't do this for you, and I won't help you. Mm-hmm. And what does it do to that patient who is then turned down and that too could lead to a delay or even a denial of service and again that's the finding of the court in this case and that's why they said on balance asking for an effective referral that is an appropriate balance that has been struck and that's struck and that's why the policies of the College of Physicians and Services that require the effective referral are in fact appropriate, and that is the appropriate balancing of charter rights. We recognize doctors' rights. We're not asking them to go in there themselves, but we are asking to recognize and uphold patients' rights as well.
1: Mm Right. And, and I think that's fair. Um, I mean, I, I also agree with the notion that, look, we, we're talking about healthcare care services. Doctors can have their opinions on certain procedures, but it, the system recognize, recognizes those as healthcare, care and it needs to be treated like any other procedure. That's right. Um, and, and I'm sorry. Well, and, and further to that, I, I wonder if there's any difference to be drawn here, any distinction to be drawn here between abortion, which has been, um, well, basically it's been 30 years, over 30 years since the Morga Taller decision versus uh, medically assisted dying, which is much more recent. In other words, there are people who have been doctors before this came along, right, that maybe they wouldn't have become doctors if they known this was going to be the, the reality of the profession.
2: Yeah, and one of the things that the court looked at was how difficult is it for a person to change their practice or to narrow their practice, and there certainly would be a certain amount of harm for doctors who had to make those changes. But doctors take an oath. They take an oath to do no harm. They take the Hippocratic Oath to help their patients. And already here, these policies are saying, well, you actually actually can harm your patients a little bit. You can turn them away. So we have a very big difference in the way we're approaching this because of recognizing doctors' religious freedom. Normally, when a doctor faces a difficult ethical decision, you know, think about a doctor, you know, advising a patient about whether or not to undergo a certain kind of cancer treatment that may be very difficult on the body, or a patient dealing with uh, a a doctor dealing with a patient who has certain, you know, mental health issues and and, and thinking about issues around involuntary treatment or involuntary detention. There are any number of really difficult ethical issues that face doctors every day. Mm -hmm. And always, always we say to doctors, and doctors take the oath to say, I'm putting the interests of my patients first. That's what I'm required to do. And yet here, in recognition of doctors' religious rights, We say, you know what? You can say no. You can say, I'm not doing this. You can place your own needs first, but up to a point, said the court. Up to a point so that you don't harm your patients so badly that they can't get the health care that they need.
1: All right, more at uh, CCLA.org. Noah, thank you so much for joining us here this afternoon. Appreciate it.
2: Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having
1: me on. All right, that is Noah Mendelsohn-Avee with the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, one of the interveners in this case. She believes the court got it right here, uh, that we do recognize the freedoms of doctors, the religious beliefs of doctors, the moral beliefs of doctors, and we are not going to force them to do anything that goes against those views, even though medically uh, assisted dying, abortion, that's part of the health care system. Those are recognized health care procedures, even if not everybody views them as such. No doctor is going to be forced to do that. Doctors cannot be an obstacle to their patients getting the health care they need. Hence, the need for the referral. Does that strike the right balance? So a news release from the federal government this week. Uh, that a uh, an advisory council on artificial intelligence has been created. Leading researchers, academics, and business executives will advise on how to build Canada's strength in artificial intelligence in a way that reflects Canadian values. Now that's some interesting phrasing. But certainly, a big part of the focus of this advisory council is to look at the emerging AI industry, how Canada continue, can continue to be a leader in this industry, and certainly the economic potential. Uh, of the advancement of ai technology but what is notable about the creation of this panel is that it includes a number of experts in the field of ethics robot ethics the ethics of this technology that clearly this is going to be a focus as well where are the ethical boundaries we need to draw the ethical issues we need to resolve the areas uh, around which perhaps we need some regulation some restrictions Right. What is the potential concern associated with the emerging AI technology and where are the areas uh, that government needs to intervene or at least needs to pay attention to? So it'll be really interesting to see where this uh, advisory council goes on that question and the potential debates that may follow because ultimately it's going to fall to the politicians to make the final decisions. Now what kind of laws need to be crafted or regulations need to be crafted? Uh, Well, someone who has recently provided some uh, advice to, to the federal government is not a part of this panel, though, but certainly a leading expert in this field. Joins us on the line here this afternoon, Joanna Bryson, associate professor in the Department of Computing at the University of Bath. Professor Bryson, great to have you with us. You're welcome to the program. Well, thank you. In terms yeah, of the, nice uh, to be here. <laughs> we appreciate making some time for us. Did you believe that this is the, the kind of approach the governments need to be taking, in, in bringing together experts in this field to, to gather some some input and some insight as to where they need to act or whether they need to act?
3: Well, I, for sure they need to act. I think it's a interesting uh, strategy. I mean, obviously people worry about something called. Uh, like ethics washing. So it's not enough to only put together a board. It's important to actually take action. But I I think that you can rest assured that the Canadian government is actually taking action. And at this point, I think pretty much all governments are definitely taking action. So I think it's a positive uh, that if they put together a council of experts to, to help them do this. I, I suppose that this sort of thing always happens, and that, that AI is somehow more prominent, so we're hearing more about it. But I mm-hmm. suppose whenever there's a new technology, the experts are brought into the room.
1: Well, sure. And, you know, unfortunately, I, I suppose, you know, the decision to bring together experts and study the issue is, there's there's often a lag, isn't there, that the technology itself is, is much further along, perhaps?
3: Well, that, that's an interesting thing, and people, people talk about that a lot. Like, oh, no, government can't keep up because AI is making things move faster. But I think actually uh, Macron had, has uh, done a quite a nice job of saying, like, look, you know, this is the way it goes. We don't mm-hmm. regulate things before we know what they do. And, and, it's, and, and so there always is sort of this Wild West period before people go, okay, now we get it, and now we build in the regulations. And it's not about having um, necessarily having the government suddenly magically being able to keep up with everything that's happening in technology. It's about putting together the adequate resources of actual experts. So, for example, regulatory bodies. Think about medicine. There's actually 10 times more uh, um, intellectual property created in medicine than in in high tech. Um, And it's very well regulated. And, and, you know, basically they're able to track the changes in that field.
1: Right. Yeah, so that's an interesting parallel. But, I mean, you know there is there are regulations around technology. I mean AI is a new form of technology, but what what's unique about the challenges that this poses as as compared to any other kind of technology?
3: Oh that's such a great question I, I want to uh, take it apart. <laughs> the first thing is that that's really important is that yes, we have other technologies and and in some ways, AI really is just technology. So somebody's built it for a purpose and they're responsible for having built it correctly. And if they can't prove due diligence about how they built it, then any incidental damage goes back to, uh, by default, back to the manufacturers. It, and and if, it, if they have built it correctly and, and described it accurately, then the people who use it are the people who are at fault. The owners are operators. So, so actually, the, in some ways, law hasn't changed at all. But, of course, there are some differences. And I actually think some of the biggest differences have to do with the digital more than the actual AI. So the fact that information can be transmitted perfectly in very little time is one of the things that really, really changes the world we're living in so that, so that our histories are really around forever, um, that the things we say are, are available to all kinds of audiences uh, in, you know, now, but also into the future. So, so I think this is one of the things that really changes things. And, and I think, of course, with any technology, as I just mentioned, when you're talking about regulators, when you have people go in and say, okay, who is it followed and who can, and who can check whether uh, due diligence was followed, those will have to be people with a particular expertise.
1: Right, but once we get into AI, I mean, we're getting into the realm of saying, you're not allowed to do this, or we're drawing some lines in terms of where this technology can go. Does it does it come to that? Well,
3: I mean, but how is that different from... Uh, any other area I mean that's sort of what regulation is we We do say what we do and don't think are okay in terms of like how much pollution do you produce or how much social disruption do you cause um i I don't think that's actually the the biggest issue
1: what is the biggest issue then
3: Oh well <laughs> I should have phrased it that way <laughs> I guess right now the 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 to me the i mean i i so artificial intelligence is an extension of our intelligence, right? It, everything that we do is, is affected by intelligence. So, so I think the really big things are the really big social disruptions. So I guess you know, the biggest issues are things like, for example, face recognition, surveillance. Are we, are we able to uh, be ourselves and continue innovating, or are we running the risks of segments of our society being entirely shut down, excluded, incarcerated, even killed? I mean, if you look at the twentieth century, there was like hundred and twenty mass killings, not just the two or three we talk about all the time so we we have to be careful about what information we provide people and how we defend people's ability to to innovate and to and to keep you know thriving and having interesting lives you know there there's some really interesting uh questions around things like uh you know this whole thing about helicopter parenting about the you know children not really making their own decisions but you know the parents aren't only making their own decisions either the whole family is constantly working together in a way that we didn't use to in the 1970s and there's questions about whether that's healthy well I think that's the kind of thing we can see happening across the whole society we're just really interested in what's happening to our families but in general the lines are, are, are getting blurred because there's so much information between us and our employers But also in us and, you know, these these organizations that we draw into our homes, you know, Amazon and Google and, you know, Facebook and and, and Apple, as they have a presence in our house um, and as we provide information to them and they provide information to us, it's almost like we're sort of part of those organizations. Mm -hmm.
1: Uh, for example, I mean, one of the members of this committee is uh, Ian Kerr from the University of Ottawa, who's involved in the campaign to stop killer robots, which is focusing on the use uh, of autonomous uh, weapons in, uh, for military application and how this technology might apply there. You've also got uh, from the Open Roboethics Institute, uh, their director has focused a lot of her research on the question of embedding values into autonomous intelligence systems. So it, it suggests that maybe this the, this advisory council is going to start to get into these areas and address these thorny questions. Is that a logical place, you think, for this, this committee to go? Well,
3: I, I think that those are, are uh, uh, very important uh, questions, and, and I'm a great fan of uh, A.J. Moon's work. I don't, I don't know uh, the other guy as well, but that's okay. I'm sorry, I forgot guy's mm-hmm. name already. But I, I do think that you've picked two things which are um, very easy to anthropomorphize. So we look at that and we think, oh, the robot becomes a person, and then we try to stop it from killing but I think it's important that we think of technology in general. We also think about, the, as I said, the impact on our schools and the impact on our democracies and, and, all of, and the, inter- the impact on our economies, right, uh, inequality. So all of these things matter, all of it. You know? We can't just say, okay, because we've got the military stuff under control, everything else doesn't matter, or because we've got bias under control, everything else doesn't matter. But the military and bias really, really do matter. I have to admit, after having just said I, I, I like uh, J. Moon's work, I, I also um, am a little skeptical about saying, "Oh, the robots need to have our values." The point is, there are robots, and they express our values. The question is, um, is how are we behaving ethically with the robots? Not are the robots behaving ethically?
1: Right. And uh, yeah, next. N- yeah, well, it's an important distinction because. The yeah. value of any technology, I mean, it, it exists because of, of the value of its creator, right?
3: Right. But as I said before, some of this is getting really blurred. So you bring something into your house and you think, well, I'm controlling it. I turn it off or I turn it on. And then we find out that, oh, no, it's recording all the stuff you're doing. And sometimes people are listening to it, right? So, so the point is nowadays with, with the, the incredible ready transmission of information through, through the digital technology in general it's harder to draw those lines about exactly who's responsible. And and we are becoming, like I said, we're, 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 we're more becoming almost like group organisms together in multiple kinds of groups. And we need to figure out, okay, how do we regulate ourselves? How do we make sure our interests are being expressed right? How, how do we make sure that we keep uh, control of what the companies are doing, what the governments are doing, what, what other governments are doing? You know, it, it's, it's an interesting, and I'm, I'm not trying to make, I, I think it's really important that we realize that we're incredibly well off and this technology has really benefited us in a lot of ways. But it basically changes a whole lot of problems that we've already had. You know, there's always been issues with, you know, how do you make sure that minorities are protected in a democracy, things like that.
1: Right. I mean, in, in terms of, and from, from an expert's perspective in this field and, and communicating this to the public, I would imagine that to some extent you're, you're having to overcome our own imaginations or the imagination of the layperson, our perspective of, of this technology, the way it's been shaped by popular culture as to, to what artificial intelligence entails, Right.
3: Right, yeah. I, 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 don't, I hate to say overcoming people's imaginations. I mean, I, I hope we can, we can harness and collaborate with people's imaginations, but, but yeah, the expectations that people have coming in, there's this incredibly strong desire to make artificial intelligence out to be like children, but it's not like children. It's, like, it's more like writing a novel. You really get to design it from the top to bottom. And and uh, people don't realize that. They really, really go with this metaphor because they've seen it a lot in, you know, in television and in movies. That, oh, this can be our children. This can be a solution to the problem that humans only live 80 years. But the fact is, most technology only lasts about five years, it's really a broken idea to think that, oh, I'll be immortal because I bought a robot. You know, that, that's mm-hmm. not a good solution. Well, I would focus I, I, on the children.
1: I, I like <laughs> the parallel, though, because it, it is like writing a novel. It, it, I think our fear is that at yeah. some point the novel will... Decide for itself how the story is going to end, right? That—that's that's, you know, the fear. Yeah, way.
3: so there is a great fear of that, and and to the and again, I think that it, we should we can we can picture that more with robots. In another way, it's it's what people worry about when 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 governments or companies uh, kind of run amok that that we didn't notice, or, or we humanity as a whole looking at sustainability in the planet. Sometimes uh, those are things that, that, that are more like what people describe. They, when, they, when they worry about uh, AI, they're actually more describing what human society tends to do when we're not sort of looking, if, if that makes sense. Yeah. But, um, but, of course, it makes sense to, to, uh, to worry. I mean, let, let me just say that for AI, the, the especially something you have in your house, you should be able to unplug it. And, and, I, and it is complicated now because, well, what if it has a battery and a microphone, and, and how do we make sure, how are we sure that our, our, our mobile phones aren't spying on us? And we have to work together on this, and we have to figure out how to make technology uh, transparent enough, not necessarily so everyone knows how everything works, but so the government can inspect, and so we, we can inspect the government, and the government can inspect the technology, and we can establish that we can trust it coming back to your interesting opening about Canadian values. I mean, I think that's part of the point is that every country has to make sure that the the technology is conforming to their local laws.
1: Very interesting insight. Professor Bryson, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us here this afternoon. Much appreciated.
3: Sure. Thank you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
1: All right, take care. Joanna Bryson uh, is associate professor in the Department of Computing at University of Bath, leading expert in the field of AI. who was mentioned as provided her own insight and advice uh, to the federal government, her thoughts on this advisory committee and the focus it needs to take. Plastic down at City Hall today, specifically single-use plastic items, how to reduce the use of these items. So the committee uh, looking at this today has voted to examine a strategy to try to reduce the use of these items. And uh, that will include looking at what other municipalities have done. Uh, This stems from a motion brought forward by Ward 7 City Councilor Drew Farrell, who joins us on the line here this afternoon. Councilor, thanks for joining us here. Good afternoon. All right. Well, what was your motion specifically calling for then?
0: It was looking for a way to reduce single-use plastics, whether it be by a ban or various strategies. And and it it was just for a scoping study so we could explore the issue. That's what came before us today was this scoping study study on how to move forward.
1: All right, so you're not necessarily at this point proposing any specific course of action, just more of a general belief that, that this is something we should be concerned about.
0: That's correct we today identified the need to consult with members of the industry and to look at what's been been most effective in other municipalities and what also would stand up in court
1: right but what, I mean what what brought you to this point what, what's led you to conclude that this is something that that city council needs to be concerned about
0: well this is something that we've been thinking about for some time uh, I know Alderman John Marr brought something similar years and years ago but it it's it, plastics when china stopped taking the world's plastics because they were either contaminated or very poor quality we really were confronted with with the reality of our own waste and so we've seen an increase of single use plastic use and it's a very small portion of our overall waste stream it's about 2% but it creates a it's havoc on our waste stream so it contaminates our blue box program it's it's the most common source of litter and it's, it's a problem for the municipalities around the world. And so municipalities around the world are dealing with it, and they're dealing with it with a whole variety of solutions. A lot of cities are going to bans. The EU is looking at bans, and it's changing habits. And that's, that's what we want to do, is make it easier for people to, make, to do the right thing and make better choices for the environment.
1: Well, as you say, I mean, the city's dealing with uh, a number of different plastic-related challenges at the moment. Uh, the problems mm-hmm. with with the uh, recycling. We, we've got the specific problem with the so-called clamshell plastic. So, where where does this rank then on on these list uh, this list of issues we're dealing with?
0: Well, it's a serious issue. If you look at the river cleanup, for example, it's, it's the most common source of litter in our in our waterways. It, it, it's, plastics are showing up in our bloodstream, in, in our Arctic water. Just the other day, the deepest part of the ocean, the Marianas Trench, they found a plastic bag at the very deepest part of our ocean. So it's ubiquitous, but it's unnecessary. And we've, we've just... We we've resorted to really bad habits, and it's become easy to to use this this unrecyclable stuff that ends up being a problem. And so, how can we how can we change our habits and make it easy? We're we're seeing changes already. IKEA, for example, doesn't use styrofoam anymore. They use a product that's like foam styrofoam, but it's made out of mushrooms, so it it degrades. It may even be food, um, and, and we're seeing Other companies act. And that's what we're trying to do is is time to change our habits. We're starting to see in grocery stores vegetables and fruits, even single vegetables, covered in plastic. New Zealand brought in rules that don't allow that and and some grocery stores they're calling it nude food are seeing a huge increase in fruits and vegetables sales because they're not wrapping it in plastic Mm. and so there's business opportunities as well. Co-op is now offering compostable bags rather than plastic bags and so we, we could see these changes happen quite quickly but we need to provide some leadership. And
1: gardens. Well, from a municipality's perspective, though, I mean, is, is this something that a city can address on its own? I mean, is this something, though, that the pro- provincial governments, even federal governments need, need to be involved in?
0: Oh, it would certainly be easier if they did, yes. Um, in absence of that leadership, cities are forced to act. So Vancouver and B.C. and Edmonton is looking at something similar, are, are acting in absence of legislation from, from other orders of government. It, we need Alberta is one of the last provinces in Canada to have extended producer responsibility, as an yeah. example. So if you're creating a product, you need to think of the end of the life of that product and what happened. To it, and and right now we're paying for it. You know, taxpayers ratepayers are all paying for that. What we want is companies to make better choices, to think about what happens to their product when people use it. Sometimes they use these products for only a few seconds, and then they they're in the environment forever until we do something with them. So it, it's it's uh, you know it's something that's grown over just. The last 20 years, we've seen this huge blossoming of use of plastic, and we need to go back to making better choices.
1: Well, if there's some urgency to the issue, it seems like this preparing this report is going to take a, a long time. There was some criticism of, of the timeline, in fact, today in the conversation. I mean, wh- why does it have to take as long as it, as it might?
2: Well,
0: there was some discussion of could we do it sooner. We're talking about a year. It's important when you're looking at bringing in a ban, for example, and I'm not suggesting we're going to go down that route. We have several options in front of us. But it's important that we bring people along with us. So consulting with industry, with restaurants, with um with Calgarians on what works for them is important. And then if we bring in new bylaws or charges or fees, then we have, we, we have greater compliance. So we tend to take the time in the front end rather than deal with the problems in the back end. And in Vancouver and, and Victoria, there were some legal challenges from the Plastic Bag Association of all things. So we need to ensure that what we do is defensible as well.
1: All right. Well, appreciate you making some time for us here this afternoon, Drew. Thanks. Thank you. All right, Drew Farrell, City Council Ward 7, uh, talking about the uh, discussion, the decision today at City Hall. This will go to the uh, council as a whole at the end of the month, and um, if it clears there, the idea is then to have a, a year-long process and a report come back to City Council in fall of next year. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge, and you can email me rob at 770chgr.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk seven seventy Calgary.